Acts 9, verses 1 to 22. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the church, against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice, uh, voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They, they heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me to you that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples of Damascus in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. I love this story. I love the story that we just heard. And Dawson, thank you for reading that. That was a long one. I know that was a long story. But uh, I, I included the entire passage that we're going to look at because I think it's a really good one. It's a story that tells me that we are God's chosen instruments, that he has a plan for us, that he wants to use us for bringing about the things of his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven, and that should be an exciting thing for us to hear. And it's a, an exciting story because it tells me that no matter what my past looks like, no matter what my present looks like, God, through the Holy Spirit, is able to take and redeem everything about it, all the, all the bad things from the past, the things I struggle with now. He can take those things and he can redeem it and he can use it because that's what God does. And that's exciting to me. What we hear here is what we see, and what we hear is the gospel in action. It's the story of what happens when Jesus breaks into our life, and it is really good news. So it excites me. I hope it excites all of you as well. Um, let's pray before we go any further. 
Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning giving thanks and praise to you, Lord Jesus, for you are worthy of all praise, Lord God. And I pray that you would go ahead of this time together. I pray that you would be, um, Lord, that your presence would just be all around us, Lord, that we would sense it, that we would know it. And Lord, take these words and do something wonderful with them. I, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This story um, begins with incredible tension. We haven't heard of Saul for a while now. We were introduced to him at the end of chapter 7, at the beginning of chapter 8, with the stoning of Stephen. And of course, it says that Saul, there's this person named Saul who is approving of what happened. And then we don't hear about him for a while. We, uh, we spent some time last week looking at the story of Philip and all the ways that God was using him. And so in the midst of everything that's going on, the Spirit is creating the church that he wants to create. Wonderful things are happening. But then all of a sudden, Luke brings us back to this tension, this tension of what's going on. There's, there's massive persecution happening at the same time. And this is the tension that we open up with in chapter 9. And again, we haven't heard much of Saul we don't know very much about him, and so I think it's a good idea as we look at who Saul is. And here's the thing. I keep wanting to call him Paul. So if I say Paul, raise up your hand and say Saul, and just kind of uh, remind me, okay, we're talking about Saul this morning, who Saul was before he came to know the Lord, and of course before we came to know him more as Paul. Who is Saul of Tarsus? What's the big deal about this guy? What's so great about this story? What makes it so exciting? What makes it so interesting that Jesus breaks into his life the way that he does? Saul was a Hellenistic Jew from the diaspora. That means he, didn't, he wasn't born and raised in Jerusalem. He was born and raised in Tarsus, which was a city uh, far north of Jerusalem. For all those of you who love geography, it's now the, eastern, the southeastern coast of modern Turkey. And Tarsus was this leading city in the empire, in the Roman Empire. It was one of these places where lots of stuff is happening. Um, it was a major center of philosophy, something that would come into play in, in Paul's writings. Paul knew Greek fluently, as, and as a Roman citizen, it gave him... Saul, did I say Paul? Oh, gosh. I did, I did. No, you're, you're doing what I asked you to do. That's good. Um, if I do it more than five times, maybe just stop me and we'll just remember Saul, okay? Um, anyways, <laughs> so he grew up in Tarsus, this major center for philosophy. Saul knew Greek fluently. Saul was a Roman citizen, which gave him access all throughout the Roman Empire, something that we would see really comes into play later on as he begins to help with the spread of the church. Are you all listening to anything else I'm saying now besides this is Saul or Paul? Saul or Paul? I don't know what he said, but he said Saul. Oh, no. Saul was familiar with Greek customs, mystery religions, and Greek philosophical schools of thought, the Stoics, the Epicureans. And what's interesting is um, Saul even quotes Greek philosophers later on when he's writing um, his letters. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Titus chapter 1, Acts chapter 17. We have these quotes from Greek philosophers that, that Saul is uh, using. And that's interesting because it shows that Saul was an academic. He was a really smart guy, but he wrote at the street level. He wrote for the common people. He is identified as a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. This is a really important note. Saul believed that he observed the law blamelessly. He observed the law blamelessly, a really important point to remember. He trained in Jerusalem under a rabbi named Gamaliel. 
And I like how, um, I think it was J.D. Greer in our Sunday school class, he mentioned this once. He said, it's like going to Harvard. That's kind of who Gamaliel was. It was like, there's this great Harvard prof that you could learn under. Gamaliel was the guy. This is who Saul got to learn from. He appeared to be a member or, uh, or play a part for the Sanhedrin, the ruling council or court regarding Jewish matters at the time. And Saul was very passionate, and he was very zealous. There was no hint, this is the other important thing, there was no hint that prior to his meeting Jesus that he had any guilt about what was going on or that he was missing something in his life. Because again, he followed the law blamelessly. He displayed almost fanatical commitment to the traditions of the fathers. He had considerable organizational skills. He possessed undoubted intelligence and creativity. And so you think of all these things about Saul's upbringing, the experiences that he had, the opportunities that he had. You look at all of these things, and you combine that with his drive and his passion and his vision and his leadership, and then you couple all of that with an encounter with the living Jesus Christ. And what you get is a gallon of gasoline poured onto a flame. It is explosive what God does through Saul. It is explosive. What's the big deal about what Saul was doing? Saul was not satisfied with the stoning of Stephen and the expulsion of the Hellenistic Christians from Jerusalem. He is continuing the persecution in places that are outside the Sanhedrin's immediate jurisdiction. Hear Saul's own words from Acts chapter 26, verse 11. He said, Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have the Christians punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. It was this obsession with Saul, this obsession to stamp out this thing called Christianity, this thing of these followers of Jesus, these people of the way. Why is that? What is so important to Saul about this? It's important to realize that he considered the worship of or devotion to Jesus as Messiah completely outrageous because God had cursed Jesus. That's how Saul saw Jesus. God had cursed him. Deuteronomy chapter 21 verse 23 says, You must not leave the body hanging on the tree overnight. Be sure to bury it that same day because anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. So when he saw Jesus crucified, or when he heard of Jesus crucified, he would have said, See, he's cursed. We don't need to listen to this guy. And why is anybody else listening to this guy? And more so, these were the days that the rabbis viewed the keeping of the Mosaic law as the vitally important prerequisite for the coming of the Messianic age. So important to protect the law. So important to make sure that people are following the law the way it is meant to be followed. If we don't protect it, who will? If we don't do this, what's going to come? They want to usher in ironies of ironies, the Messianic age. That, of course, has already come. Long story short, Saul sought to contain the spread of what was considered to be a malicious contagion in Israel. And so this is where Luke picks up an axe. The very first line we hear, the tension is, is palpable. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He goes to the high priest. He asks for permission to go and, and extradite the, the Jewish Christians from around the diaspora and bring them back to Jerusalem to be reckoned with. 
And in this case, he goes to Damascus. It's a large and thriving commercial center. Like any other urban location, people are going to naturally flock there. And many Jewish Christians did. There were many synagogues in Damascus at the time, hence Saul's destination. And so you think of all these things, and then you have to ask, okay, if we imagine a man who believes that he can do no wrong, if we imagine a man who believes that everything that he is doing, this this persecution towards Christians is sanctioned by God, and that he's followed the law blamelessly, that he is righteous in that sense before God. If we imagine a man like that, what is he waiting for? I wonder, is he waiting to be recognized by Yahweh? Is he waiting to have that moment where Yahweh comes up to him and says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've done a great job. I'm so proud of you. Let's get a picture together here real quick. You know. Here comes Elijah with the camera. Get a photo of us. Well done, Saul. I'm proud of you. Good job. Good and faithful servant. I wonder, is this what Saul is waiting for? Now, all of a sudden, you're on your donkey one day, and you're riding in the Syrian desert towards Damascus, and the hot, bright sun is upon you, and all of a sudden, there's these flashes of light that are brighter than the sun, and they cause you to fall to the ground. What is going through Saul's mind right at this moment? I wonder, is it, this is my moment? This is it. This is it. Yahweh has come. This is my burning bush moment. This is where he comes and he tells me these things. Is this going through Saul's head to hear what? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Is all he can say. Who are you, Lord? The word Lord here can be taken two ways. It can be looked at as that worshipful sense of Lord, or it can be looked at as um, Sir. Who are you, Sir? As in, to whom am I speaking? And there's a little bit of debate here. Which one is Saul meaning? I think it's a bit of both. I think it's a little bit of, who am I speaking to? And yet, I wonder if deep down inside, he already knows the answer. And the answer comes, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But the lightning doesn't fall. Saul is not consumed by fire. Instead, simple instructions are given. Now get up, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And when Saul gets up, he's blind. I have no doubt that he's physically blind, but I think it's figuratively as well. He is blind. It makes me think of Isaiah 44, verse 9. All who make idols are nothing, and the things that they treasure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind. They are ignorant to their own shame. Saul has been made aware of his idol. And just like his idol, he is blind. Now, I think there's a connection that is being made here in Saul's heart and mind. It would come over some time, of course, and we see it worked out as he's writing his letters to the church later. But some of these connections include the fact that Jesus is not something new. It's not some new religion. In fact, some would say that they wouldn't even call it Saul's conversion. There's no conversion actually going on here, they argue. They say he's come to realize that Jesus 
is the continuation of Israel's story. This is more Saul's calling. But Saul comes to realize this. Jesus is the continuation of Israel's story. And all of that would mean about the law and all of those things. I mean, we can't go into it in depth now, but Saul begins to figure these things out. But he begins to figure something else out. When he is persecuting Christians, he is persecuting Jesus. Jesus sees it as the same thing. Now, let me tell you something. When you wake up one morning thinking that you are a friend of God and that your actions are righteous only to find out that you have been an enemy of God, you do not recover from that ever. You do not recover from that. And so here is this extreme example. And it's easy to understand in this way the significance of what's going on with Saul. It gives us a little bit of a better idea. This man who was breathing out murderous threats suddenly shown the error of his ways. But what I like about this is that Luke doesn't stop there. He goes on to show us another uh, conversion story, if you will. He immediately treats us to another story of sorts that may sound unlikely at the outset, and that's of Ananias. Luke wastes no time in changing the scene from Saul to Ananias. And when we look at Ananias' calling in comparison to Saul's, there are some similarities. Ananias, in a way, asks the exact same question that Saul does. Who are you, Lord? He's just praying one day, and all of a sudden the Lord breaks into his life and says, Ananias, I want you to do this. I want you to go to this man named, from Tarsus. His name is Saul. He is praying right now, and I've given him a vision that you are going to come and lay your hands on him, and you're going to um, help him to see once again. And Ananias' answer kind of says it all. Lord? I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. Just in case you hadn't heard that, Lord, I thought I should let you know. Can you blame him? This is a very tall order that God is giving Ananias. And in a sense, he's asking the same question. Who are you, Lord? Are we talking about the same Saul of Tarsus? Tarsus is a big place. Is there more than one Saul? This guy? Are you really a God who would do this, that would use a man like Saul? But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And I think, again, in this moment, a type of conversion is taking place. Another worldview is being overturned. Ananias is left to trust in the things that God is telling him. Saul is praying, and he's praying to Jesus. And Jesus is in, working in his life already and giving him visions already. And, and, and I've got to trust in you, Lord, that this is what you want me to do. And isn't the Christian walk like that? Isn't our faith like that? It's never just one step of faith, is it? It's always other steps of faith that we're being called to, isn't it? And Ananias is experiencing the same thing. Do I really choose to follow Jesus in this way? Do I really have faith that this is how Jesus operates? And the answer is not only found in Ananias' showing up at the door of Judas's place on Straight Street, but it's in the very first two recorded words, Brother Saul brother, Saul. The Lord 
Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Somewhere between Ananias' house and that house on Straight Street, that decision had to be made. Can I really accept this man as my brother in Christ? Can I do this? And he does. Praise the Lord. Now, I don't know what the scales are that fall from Saul's eyes, but I think it's, the message is pretty clear. His eyes are being opened to Jesus' forgiveness. And Saul's eyes are being opened to the forgiveness of others, people he doesn't even know, but people that I'm sure he has hurt. And his eyes are being opened to the amazing grace of Jesus Christ, and his idols are being cast down, and Saul can now see. So, as I spent some time just in this text, and as I spent some time just kind of letting it speak to me, the one thing that constantly stands out to me are Jesus' words to Ananias regarding his plans for Saul. Let's hear them one more time. The Lord said to Ananias, This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. This man is my chosen instrument. The first part speaks the loudest to me. Saul is God's chosen instrument. And that speaks incredible hope to me. And I I, I think it should speak incredible hope to all of us. God sees through the things that we might count as unforgivable or as unredeemable. As I was mentioning earlier, you don't recover from finding out that you are God's enemy. But here's the thing. When I say that, I don't mean to say that Saul's life was forever defined by his guilt. Just the opposite. Saul's life is forever defined from here by God's grace. His life is defined by the amazing grace of God. And that just pours out in all of his letters. That pours out in everything that he does. I don't doubt that he had his bad days regarding guilt, though. I think that's evident in his letters as well. But here's the thing. You don't recover from the knowledge of God's grace. When we truly come to know that, that seeps inside of us. Listen to what he writes in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 2. Paul would, later when he was Paul, would write, Therefore, since we have been justified, made righteous, made right with God through faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. See, Saul had experienced that power of God's grace in his life and that forgiveness and that reconciliation that comes from being an enemy of God to being made a friend of God. He sees that God, that Jesus died for sinners. He would go on to say, you know, hardly anyone dies for anyone else. Hardly anyone dies for a good person, let alone dying for someone who is a sinner. And yet later in chapter 5, verse 8 through 11, he writes, But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, 
but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. I finish that verse and I always hear the song, I am a friend of God. I am a friend of God. He calls me friend. I don't think we sing that here, but I always think of that song. Maybe we should. Through the grace of Jesus Christ, Saul discovers what it truly means to be right with God, what it means to be righteous, to be justified, to be counted as a friend. And if Christ had called him an active enemy, then how much more would he call those, including Gentiles, whom Saul eventually would spend the majority of his time ministering to? Saul is baptized, and he is filled with the Holy Spirit, and as mentioned before, a gallon of gasoline is poured on a flame. And the result is explosive. I think the road to Damascus and what happened there might be the single most defining moment in Western culture. There's a thought. Saul is God's chosen instrument. So was Ananias. We think, you know, God's chosen instruments, and it's got to be some really massive thing. And, and with Paul, or with Saul, we see that. With Paul, we see that. With Ananias, this is the only thing we know about him. We know that he reached out, and, and maybe that's the only thing we need to know about him. I guess so. But he is also God's chosen instrument. Saul is, Ananias is, and so are all of you. You are God's chosen instrument. Take great hope in that. Get excited about that. God has a plan for you. God has something incredible for you. I don't care what stage of life you're in. I don't care what your age is. God has something incredible for you. And here's the other part that's even better. It doesn't matter what your past looks like. And it doesn't matter what your present looks like. Because when God gets a hold of you, and when we submit to what he is doing in our lives, he does something incredible. He redeems us. And he redeems the things of our past, no matter what. And so your sin does not define you. God's grace defines you. The temptations that you struggle with day in and day out do not define you. Rather, the Holy Spirit working within you defines you because you are a child of God. And he loves you. And you are his chosen instrument. Please receive that word, church. But it's not an easy road, is it? not an easy road. As I read this text, the latter part of Jesus' words regarding Saul spoke to me as well. Jesus says, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. That sounds so ominous. <laughs> I'm trying to imagine Jesus' voice. Is it like, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name? <sighs> that was a little too Darth Vader. That's not what I intended. <laughs> but remember what Travis mentioned a couple weeks ago? God will often accomplish his plans through difficulty and discomfort. Why do you think that is? I'm going to take a stab at it. Because difficulty and discomfort is a part of our life no matter what. It is a part of the human story. It doesn't matter what our physical, our emotional, our economical status is. It doesn't matter where on the chart you end up you will suffer in this life. It is a hard life. Do we choose to experience it with 
or without God. That's what we get to choose. And I think Saul knew this well. In Romans 8, he would write, Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. What Saul discovered is that suffering for Christ, it is an honor. That sounds so weird, doesn't it? But it is an honor. For God takes our suffering and he does what he does best. He redeems it. He makes it count for something. When we cannot make any sense of this life, when we cannot make any sense of the things that we see going on all around us, even this past week, we see the brokenness, the hurt in this world. And we say, what is the point of all this? God can take those things. He can take our own brokenness. He can take the things that we have had shattered in our lives. And he says, you know what? Let's pick these pieces up. It's not going to look the same as what it was, but I'm going to put the glue of my grace on here, and we're going to fit it back together, and it's going to look completely different, but it's going to be beautiful. That's what God does. That's what God does with our suffering. And any suffering we experience on account of his name is counted as blessed. Great is our reward in heaven, says Jesus. So to walk with the Lord, then, is indeed to see how much we must suffer for his name, but it's better to suffer for the name of Christ than it is to suffer for your own purposes or someone else's purposes. And so Saul's eyes were opened. They were opened to the awesomeness of God's grace. Ananias' eyes were opened. They were opened to how far that grace extended. And other people, whether they could believe it or not, their eyes were being opened in Damascus to God's grace at work in the world. Listen to the last part of our reading. Verses 19 to 22. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. That must have been awkward. There must have been so much tension at the time. Can we really trust this guy? It wasn't just Ananias that would have to make that choice to say, Brother Saul. Others would have as well. But Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. And at once, he began to preach in the synagogues. Can you imagine Saul coming up to the door of the synagogue, right? Maybe someone opens it and says, oh my gosh, it's Saul from Tarsus. He got those letters from the high priest. This is it. And Saul's like, have you heard about Jesus? We got to talk about this guy. And they're like, do we just go with this or what happens? Okay, get the bat just in case, but we're going to you know, hear what he has to say. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem? Among those who call on this name, And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? And yet Saul grew more and more powerful, and he baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. I would have loved to hear that sermon. May our eyes be opened like Saul and Ananias' were. May we see how great God's grace is in our lives. May we see how great and how far that grace extends to. And may we be able to see the people that his grace extends to. That might be one of the hardest parts, to see the people that God chooses to extend his grace to. There will be a time when God is going to use the life of someone infamous to do something incredible for the kingdom. He's done it before, and he's going to do it again. What will be our reaction? What will be our response when that happens? The news is full of unsavory people 
doing absolutely wicked and terrible things. This past week is no exception. And I'm not going to name any names because the media is naming them all too much. I don't need to add to that. But here's what I believe. One day, one of these people are going to meet the living Jesus Christ on the way to Damascus, just as Saul did. And we're going to hear something along the lines of, at once they began to preach on the streets that Jesus is the Son of God. And all those who heard them were astonished and asked, isn't this the rapist who raised havoc at Stanford University? Isn't this the gunman who raised havoc in Orlando? And I'm not talking about someone conveniently getting religion. I'm talking about a face-to-face encounter with the living Jesus Christ. And I believe when that happens, God will do something incredible through that person's life because that's what God does. That's what he's in the business of doing. And he's going to use those people to reach people that you and I could never even get close to because that's what God does. I believe that's how far his grace reaches out to. Are there consequences to their sin? Absolutely. And there should be. But I believe that their lives could still be defined by God's grace rather than by their guilt, just as Saul's was. And again, the question is, what will be our reaction? What will be our response when that happens? So as I speak to this room full of God's chosen instruments, may our eyes too be open to God's far-reaching grace. May you know all the things that God has for you and be open to all the ways that he wants to use you. And don't go comparing yourself to someone like Saul slash Paul. Don't go comparing yourself to the person beside you. No, you're not like them. God didn't call you to be like them. He called you to be who you are, and he called to use you as exactly who you are for his purposes. So may we know that grace. May we know how far it reaches. And may we be willing to accept the people that it reaches out to so that our worldviews as well might be overturned and we might experience a type of conversion to just how amazing God is day in and day out. Amen? All right, let's pray. And uh, worship team, would you please come back up? How great is your grace, Lord God. How good is it, Lord, that you are willing to reach out to us, that you are willing, Lord, to see the people that you see, not who we see, not who others see, Lord, but who you see, Lord Jesus. I pray for all those in this room this morning, Lord God, who right now are saying, that can't be me. God cannot use me. I'm too far gone. And I rebuke that thought in Jesus' name, and I pray, Lord God, that you would break into our lives. Lord Jesus, that you would quiet the voices that tell us that we are no good, that you would quiet the voices, Lord, that say we are too far gone, and instead, Lord God, help us to hear the voice, Lord, that says that we are no longer slaves to fear, but we are heirs of God. We are heirs of Jesus. We are, we are family to you, Lord. We are your children. Thank you, Lord. I pray your blessing on the rest of this time, Lord. Strengthen us as we go from here into this world. And Lord, help us to walk with eyes open to know your grace and your goodness, I pray. In Jesus' most holy name.
Amen.